0: All right, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, we'll be looking this morning at verses 16 through 21. That'll be the goal at any rate this morning. And we see the title of our message today is the real consequences of sin. Uh, As we go about our daily lives, it can be easy to kind of forget some of the some of the basic principles of life and especially as sinful people one of one of our tendencies is to downplay uh the consequences of sin and sin in our in our own lives and and it's it's our nature to actually to do this and that is a a desperate flaw that we have and uh, sometimes the consequences of our sins become uh rather obvious and that it plays out in in circumstances in our lives and other times it really doesn't and it's those times that are that are particularly nefarious uh to us in our in our lives as people because we think that we're getting away with sin or we we can think that oh you know oh that went that went okay so i you know i don't need to worry about that anymore but the fact of the matter is that sin uh has long-term consequences and the truth of the matter is uh, about biblical christianity that it has a an answer to sin in our lives. We we can also often fall into the trap of wondering how God can allow bad things to happen in the world and these kinds of uh this kind of thinking that can entrap us really and and eventually cause us to be skeptical and you see all kinds of people deconstructing their faith and uh, deconstructing the Bible and these kinds of things because we're not understanding the truth of the book of Revelation, the literal truth that we find here that God will deal with sin and He is going to finally and fully eradicate it from his creation and and in revelation chapter 19 we see the the beginning of this process in reality and the beginning of that process is this incredible uh bloodshed and uh really righteous warfare that we looked at last week that the lord is bringing to this earth. He is coming again to judge and to wage war, it says in Revelation 19.11. And that is the consequence of sin. And it's not just we another problem that we can have as believers is saying, oh, see, these people are finally getting what they deserve and, and won't this be great? But the fact of the matter is that the Savior had to die for your sin and my sin and take all of this onto himself and has to come again to finally and fully eradicate it from the world because we are sinful people. So there are real consequences for sin. It's important for us to understand that this uh, book of Revelation doesn't just stand alone as a as a standalone book of the Bible, but in fact, it is it is uh, very much so. Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ finishing off the narrative of the Bible and showing us when the things that the Bible predicts will happen are actually going to take place in in more detail concerning the events that will lead up to God finally dealing with the problem of sin, not uh, finally and fully dealing with the problem of sin. And so within the book of Revelation it's important to understand that as we talked about in Sunday school that just because this is prophecy doesn't mean that that it's a a different genre of scripture and so we use a different method to interpret it. That's a a very bad mistake that is being pushed forward. Within Christendom uh, I believe primarily because people don't like literal interpretation of Revelation and and what it means for the world and what it means for the church and uh, there's all sorts of implications uh, for it and unfortunately people don't like the fact that God is the one who's going to take care of these problems completely on his own. He doesn't need us to build his kingdom for him. Uh, And so In that regard, since we want to interpret this book literally and understand it in its plain sense, the plain writing, the plain understanding of what is there, not that it's uh, simple or simplistic, the book of Revelation as we've seen is rather complicated, but nevertheless God is communicating it to us and so he wants therefore he wants us to understand it and so we can understand it, if we will just read it for as it is presented to us when we do that, we see the book can be easily broken into three parts: the things which you have seen, the revelation of Christ, the the vision of the risen Christ, the things which are letters to literal churches, uh, how you ought to be uh, correcting yourself under the power of the Holy Spirit and his word to us, how we can order our lives because of the fact that things are about to change. Things are changing. There's already a spirit, John says in one of his epistles. There's already a spirit of Antichrist in this world, so how is we as believers, how should we then be living? That's chapters 2 and 3. And then, the meat of the book is chapters 4 through 19, 4 through the end really, of chapter 22. The things which will take place after these things, of course, are outline verse, if you will, Revelation 1.19 breaks this down very nicely for us. You'll find that in most books of the Bible there is some uh, verse or a passage that you can go to where the author reveals exactly what he's going to talk about and will give you a nice outline for the book. Uh, the future things are the scene in heaven, the tribulation period, That we've been studying. And then the second coming. Again, plain understanding of what is written to us can only lead us to one conclusion that we'll see again later. That there is a tribulation period, a time of intense persecution and tribulation, uh, God's wrath being poured out upon the world. And then he comes again to the earth and then there is a kingdom that that's the only conclusion that you can come to from a plain reading of scripture that Christ comes to this earth to establish his kingdom before the kingdom comes to the earth that's what's known as premillennialism and we'll talk about that some more uh later but we are at that this Climactic moment of history when Christ comes again. We've uh, beginning in verse eleven of Revelation nineteen. We saw His appearance, but He is coming into this world again, physically, bodily, coming to the earth—a literal second coming of literal physical Jesus, the God-Man, coming again to this earth. He was described with his eyes that are a flame of fire, he has uh he's all knowing, all seeing, he's completely sovereign with these uh diadems upon him uh and he has several names that we looked at, one that we don't know. We don't want to make something up about what that is. We'll just take it for what it says. It's an unknown name. Maybe we'll know at some point in the future. He's also faithful And true, he's the word of God and he's the king of of kings and lord of lords in verse 16, which we'll begin with uh, today as well. Uh, Last time we looked at the armies that are in heaven. We saw that we as believers in Christ will be there with him. We are spectators in this coming again with him on white horses Uh, it says we don't have any sort of weaponry. We're not going to be fighting the battles for the Lord. He is the one who will be doing this. Incidentally, for us to be spectators of this, to be there with Him, means that we need to, at some point in time before this, be uh, resurrected, have physical bodies to be able to do uh, to be there with Him, riding on these as it's described there. So there are some implications along with that. Uh, Namely that that means that this event that's being described here, the second coming, is something different than the rapture of the church uh, that we spent uh, some time studying as well. But Last time we looked at the sword that Jesus uses, the, the very words of His mouth are how He is going to implement this judgment. And it is going to be a judgment upon the nations. He's going to to strike them with the sharp sword that comes from His mouth, uh, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. We looked at that term that term for rule last time, spent some time their understanding that that is the same word that is used uh, for a shepherd. That he's going to be shepherding people along with ruling over them. Very similar to what a shepherd does in real life. He is the one who is in charge of the sheep and he leads them to where he wants them to be and that's precisely what he's going to do in the kingdom as well. And as I mentioned, the rapture and the second coming of Christ that's described here in Revelation 19. Two very different events as we've spent time studying over the last few weeks. This time we'll look at the fact that the king is coming again. This is a a future fact of history, if you will. We can uh, study this event the same way that we study World War II or any other past event we are privileged enough in the scriptures to see the future revealed to us this is a literal event that in fact must take place this is uh this is not just some sort of theological argument that we that is uh something that's debated in seminaries and this kinds of thing or something that we can debate with our friends uh, no this is a necessary fact of history without the second coming of Christ to the earth we are left hopeless in this world uh, and then we'll also see the call to the birds and the casting into hell oh by the way another uh, literal thing that we need to that we need to understand we begin with the fact that the king is coming again. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is a, a name that is very fitting, of course, for him. He is known by what he is. He is the ultimate sovereign. Uh, he is the ultimate king of all the kings, king of the earth, and he's also the Lord of lords. That is a, a term that means he's the God, it essentially means he's the God of gods. He is God. He is king. And it is all wrapped up in this person of Jesus Christ. It's very important for us to understand who Jesus is, and when, and to understand precisely what He will be doing when He comes again. He, Jesus, is a prophet, priest, and king in one person. He was a prophet when He came the first time. Uh, prophet doesn't mean that He was just necessarily. Uh, always talking about the future or only telling them about future events. Prophets do a lot more than just proclaim the future. A prophet is someone who teaches. It is probably the, the main function of a prophet. Direct people back to God, back to His Word and how our lives ought to be ordered in light of Future events. That's what, a pro- that's what all the prophets did for the people of Israel in the uh, times before Christ. Yes, they told the future, but their main goal was to guide the people back to God because of the future events. That's exactly what Jesus did. In Luke 19 verses 47 through 48, there's a number of places. If you'll remember our study of the Gospel of Luke, that is his primary purpose or the thing that he was uh, his day was wrapped up in the most of was teaching. Luke 19:47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Jesus was primarily uh, concerned with teaching people in his first advent, oftentimes in light of what's going to happen in the future. The fact that he's coming again to judge and to wage war, so you ought to be on the right side of history. Is his primary message. You need to trust in him now. Of course Jesus taught about the future, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 being one of those times, but he was primarily interested in telling people about their sin and the fact that they needed to be made right with God or they're going to face the consequences. This was what most of his earthly ministry was about. Now, of course, he is acting as a priest. This is what's known as the present session of Christ. He is our high priest in heaven. He could do that because he was he is the God man. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins, shed his own blood, and now he's acting as a as a high priest in heaven. Not reigning as a king today. That is something that is for the future. And in order to be the prophet, priest, and king, the one who teaches us, the one who is an offering for sin, and the one who will one day rule over this earth, he has to fulfill all three parts of it. And so if we just exclude his priestly role, well, we're kind of getting the cart before the horse. We're missing out on a main part of who Christ is. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This uh, present session of Christ is very important for us, obviously. And, And through it, we can hold fast our confession. Through This present session of Christ as our priest, we have access to the throne of grace. We have access to God himself to bring our uh, prayers and petitions, our desires and our wishes before him because of what Christ is doing for us there. Very important for us to understand that. One day he will be king. That is at his second advent, what we are studying here in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, he's called the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming again to rule the nations. That's why he's coming again, in order to do that. Implication being, he's not doing that right now. Do I? You don't have to have a PhD in political science to know that Christ isn't ruling the nations today. Things are not going the way that they will, the the way that they're described in the Scriptures, what the Scriptures say about the future. That is not the reality today. One day it will be the reality. And this idea of Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or God being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is not a new idea with uh, John, That's why you see it, if you have an NASB, it's all in capital letters there implying that it is a a reference to or a quotation of an Old Testament passage. That's Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. When Jesus comes again, he's not showing partiality. He's not going to be uh, open to a bribe when he comes again to strike the nations and to to rule over them. And this is not a new idea that John is describing here. Uh, This is something that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, Very, very similar description of what will be taking place. We've read that uh, many times in the past in our study of Revelation. Uh, He is coming to rule. This is a passage uh, Suzanne even said when she was looking at the verses, she puts them into the computer for the live stream, and she says, why are we talking about this Christmas verse? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. That's for Christmas. I thought we were studying about the second coming. Well, yes, in fact, we are. And it's all and it is wrapped up into that verse. We like the first part at Christmas time. Isaiah 9 6 for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. It goes on from there. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We could park on that uh, for the next couple hours and discuss all of the implications of what is being said there essentially what is being said is that Jesus Christ is going to rule over this earth he's going to do it from the throne of david over his kingdom that's well that's jerusalem that's israel if we just take the word for its for its uh plain understanding of what's being communicated to us from God. We can only come to one conclusion. Jesus Christ is going to be a human. He's going to be born of a woman. A child is going to be given to us, but he's going to be more than just a person. He's not just a special person who was born Uh, one day, or even a special person who was born miraculously. Well, there's another example of a miraculous birth in the Bible. Isaac, that's a miracle. Abraham and Sarah having a, a a child at nearly 100 years old, that's miraculous. Jesus isn't that. He's more than that. Even though he has a miraculous birth, he is also God. And the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Mighty God. That's his name. Who he is. Eternal Father. Another name that will be given to this child that is born. That's God. He's going to be God in human flesh is what's described there. And he's going to rule over a literal kingdom on this earth. There's no other uh, understanding that we can come to unless we read in our own presuppositions and these kinds of things and ideas being plainly and clearly communicated to us there will be a literal kingdom on this earth and the God-man, Jesus Christ will rule over it and, and he needs us to, to build it for him. Is that what it says? Oh, no it doesn't. The last sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The same way that Jesus Christ doesn't need our help in doing good works in order to save us. He doesn't need us to help old ladies across the street. He doesn't uh, demand that we come to church and pray five times a day and these kinds of things. No, he is the one who accomplished our salvation completely on the cross of Christ. Anything other than that, anything being added into that is false doctrine, heresy, heresy, it's been my word of the week has been heresy. I'm realizing things that are not in line with the scriptures are well, that's heresy. And there's a reason why God demands that He is the one who does all the work, that He's not interested in our good works, because our good works ultimately stem from pride. If we think that we have to do something, or that God requires us to do something, on the outside it could be, well, God God wouldn't be so nice as to just allow me into heaven. I have to do something. I've got to earn his favor. And you can kind of couch it in a way that, that, oh, poor me, I have to do this thing. But in reality, you're saying, what God has done for me isn't good enough, and I've got, I have to add to it. I have to earn my salvation. It's wrapped up in pride, actually, is what it comes from. The idea that we can build a kingdom that is so good that Jesus will come back and rule over it, that's the foundation of post-millennialism, is equally as prideful as thinking that we can earn God's favor through our works. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ is the one who is going to do it all. So the Messiah is going to rule. That's a Hebrew Bible concept that is known by every Jewish person who's familiar with the Bible at all. And he's also going to be God. They should know that as well from Isaiah 9, uh, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. He's going to rule Messiah. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This one who's going to be born of a woman, born in the city of Bethlehem, is going to be eternal. Only God is eternal. And this king and kingdom on the earth is necessary. This is something that it's, this isn't a debatable issue as far as the problem of sin and how it is going to be dealt with. God must be victorious in this world that he created that for sin to be dealt with, That is a necessary outcome. And the reason for that is because that is the way that God created the world, that he created everything. It was very good, including humanity, including Adam and Eve, and he gave them the mandate to rule over his creation. And if they would have done that in faithfulness, then life would have been the way it was intended to be from the very beginning. If they would have uh, simply obeyed God. That's how life would have been. But they did not. And therefore, Satan usurped this uh, authority that God had given to Adam to rule over the earth. Genesis one 26 you don't have to take my word for it we can just look in the Bible it says then God said let us make man in our image again there's a lot there's a lot going on there uh, God is triune this isn't a a New Testament thing that that the writers of the New Testament invented no God is has always been three persons in one, and he's portrayed that way in the Old Testament also. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds in the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created Adam to rule over this earth. We know that when he fell He sinned against God in disobedience. He lost that right to uh, completely rule over this earth. And when he did that, Satan took his place in that. John 12, 31, Jesus' own words, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's Satan. Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world right now, but he will be cast out. And it's he's not going to be cast out uh, simply through some kind of warfare or something like that. He's going to be cast out when sin is taken care of. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That's how that... that uh, passage concludes. John 12:31. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out and I if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. The two go hand in hand. Satan uh, having usurped Adam's role as uh, ruler over the earth because of sin is going to be cast out when Jesus takes care of the problem of sin by being lifted up on the cross. See, we get into a lot of uh, difficulties when we kind of divide the Bible into the Old Testament. Oh, that's for the Jews, and that's before Jesus. We don't really have to worry about that. I'm a New Testament uh, Christian. You may have even, I've heard that phrase before. I'm a New Testament Christian. Are you a New Testament church? Uh, I guess so. (laughs) The church wasn't uh, conceived of until the New Testament. I guess that means, uh, it depends on what you mean by that. We, we make a mistake when we're dividing the Bible like that, as the New Testament is simply the, the continuation or the fulfillment of the things that we understand from the Old Testament. We would have no idea who Jesus is, why he's coming into the world Uh, what his purpose is, what he's going to do in the future, what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, without understanding the truths of the Old Testament. It's one continuous narrative, essentially the, the narrative of how God is dealing with the problem of sin. And the necessary outcome is a literal king and kingdom on the earth because that's where the problems began, on this earth. And so God is going to uh, deal with that situation literally upon this earth, the same place that Adam fell, the same place that Satan came, usurped uh, Adam's authority. And this authority is going to be regained in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 45, Paul says, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. That's from Genesis. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, we lost life in sin through what Adam did. We gain life through Christ and what he did. And so, one of the... uh, more popular uh, theories that is becoming more and more prominent today is that uh, you know all this king and kingdom stuff. It's not. It's important, but it's not really a literal kingdom. The, but it's the mission of the church is to bring this kingdom to the earth, and it's very. Uh, Wrapped up in a lot of uh, <laughs> ideas that man is conceiving rather than getting them from the Bible. It's encompassed in a, uh, the latest iteration of it is encompassed in a book by G. K. Beale, if you're familiar with him. He's president of Reformed Seminary in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he's written a book. That the title of it escapes me right now, but essentially it is a book about how the the church needs to be doing today what Adam was supposed to do. So he has this concept that the Garden of Eden was a, is actually the temple of God, and it was put onto the earth. Uh, and the, the place where the Garden of Eden was, well, that was that was nice. That was the way the world is supposed to be. But the rest of the earth was where the thorns and the thistles are and there was death and there was destruction outside of the garden and so Adam's mandate was to make the garden big, expand it push it out, take over the world and essentially conquer the world for God and make it great again and we all know from Genesis that Adam failed in that role and so now, God is using the church to push out Eden into the world and take it over for God. And then, at some point, when we've done a good enough job, Christ will come again, and he'll rule over the earth. And for, uh, there are all kinds of crazy theories that go along with this. One is that Adam was actually a priest, uh, in the garden and that in Ezekiel 28 when we see uh, Adam or we see the description of what we would say is Satan being the one who was in the garden and he had robes and these kinds of things had a position G.K. Beale will tell you that no that's Adam in the garden with the robes and the, the jewels and all of these things and he was given this role to take over the world and he failed Uh Number of problems with that. The Bible actually tells us that Adam was naked in the garden. He didn't have robes. And at any rate, it's all, all of this is an effort to distort how we have seen the Bible clearly lays out our timeline. A period of tribulation, then Christ comes again at the end, then the kingdom comes to the earth. Very, very plainly described here in the book of Revelation and a number of other places that we have looked at. Time of tribulation, Christ comes again, and then the kingdom. That is uh, pre-tribulational, uh, dispensational, premillennialism. That We're the second category. I need to remake this uh, graph so it's a little bit easier for you to see. I'm not sure if you can see all that. But we have uh, Christ coming on the earth, living. There's a rapture of the church before this tribulation begins. That's the pre-tribulational part. Then at some point after, subsequent to the rapture, the seven-year tribulation takes place. Then Christ comes again, and there's a literal 1,000-year period. That's pre-tribulational, pre millennial the standard way to uh, differentiate these viewpoints within theology is to place the rapture of the church in reference to the tribulation. Do you think the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation, at some point during the tribulation, or after the tribulation at the end? That's what post-tribulational premillennialism is. These these are individuals who believe that the rapture essentially the rapture of the church and the second coming are the same event. We go up, we meet Christ in the air, we come back down to him. This happens after the tribulation. But they do believe in a literal kingdom upon the earth there are variations of all of these viewpoints. Uh, But they do believe that there is a, a kingdom on the earth and sometimes you may hear this called covenantal uh, premillennialism or historic premillennialism. It can sometimes be referred to. Rapture and second coming, all one event, happens at the end of a tribulation. We go up, we come immediately back down, uh, and then there's a literal kingdom after that. So uh, there's a number of issues with that. Viewpoint that we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about, and we won't go into today. Uh, Number one, the number one problem with this is it's not a consistent literal interpretation of the Bible to come to that sort of conclusion, but we'll just leave it there. Uh, The other two viewpoints are postmillennialism and amillennialism, and these are two viewpoints that are very closely related. They are uh, cousins, if you will. Very closely related uh, cousins. Um, Okay, I'll give you the example, not to embarrass my daughter, but we went to a a family reunion this week, or not this week, this past year, and... uh, I have nieces who are very closely the same age as Adeline, whom she is, I'm not sure if you've ever even seen them before, but they're very closely related. Uh, they're first cousins, and they're almost identical in the way <laughs> the way that they act. It was striking. And I thought, well, that's kind of like Adeline is post-millennialism and her cousins are millennialism. They're the same. And that's essentially not saying that she's a post-millennialist, but uh, they're essentially the same viewpoint with just slightly different uh, takes on how everything's going to, to play out. Post-millennialism. Jesus Christ comes to the earth after the kingdom has been established. Not, what we, not a plain reading in any sense of what we see in all of these prophetic scriptures. Every single one of them. Uh, the book of Zephaniah, Isaiah, Daniel. Uh, the, st- the statue is destroyed by the stone in Daniel chapter 2. And then it grows into a kingdom that uh, fills the entire earth. That is what is described in Revelation. Christ comes to the earth, shatters the kingdoms of the world, and then his kingdom comes to the earth. The exact opposite of what is described In post-millennialism, there is a, in both post- and amillennialism, amillennialism is no kingdom, essentially, that's what amillennialism means. There's no literal kingdom on the earth, Christ is ruling in heaven, and the kingdom is just sort of in heaven and in our hearts, and we just need to make the world a better place. And this is where kind of the social gospel comes from. These kinds of uh, very big doctrinal errors. If we think that we as the church need to be pushing out, pushing Eden out into the world, well, how do we do that? Because people are poor. People don't have enough food. People have illnesses. People don't have enough drinking water. People have all sorts of problems. People have relational problems. And so we need to uh, be fixing all of these problems for people that all stems from this kind of an idea that there really isn't a kingdom. It's in our hearts and we need to make the world a better place. Post-millennialism. Christ comes after the kingdom comes. We have to build the kingdom. We've got to make sure that everybody has enough food to eat, everybody has water to drink, everybody's uh, life is perfectly squared away, and then Christ will come again. Well, that's, that's a doctrinal error. And so now, what is missing from all of those things? The gospel. The fact that the problem is sin and it's dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ fully and completely. And our duty today is to ensure that people know that and how to walk by means of the Spirit until Christ comes again and establishes His kingdom. So these uh, doctrinal issues, they're not just for, for seminaries and for us to uh, debate with our friends at Thanksgiving dinner. No, in fact, they they are very real, and they're very important to our understanding of what God is doing in the world today and what we should therefore be about. Jesus Christ is coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords, and this ought to inform us as to how we need to be living, because there is coming a time when real, true judgment is coming to this earth. Revelation 19:17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble you for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Notice again, that the language here that John uses, I, then I John is an eyewitness to this. Saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven. This is a literal birds who are literally flying in mid heaven. Mid heaven is that's uh, a Bible term for the sky. These are literal birds that he is referring to. This is not some kind of uh, apocalyptic language that he's using here. The Book of Revelation is not an apocalyptic book, uh, people. That's another phrase that we hear that is simply used to disregard what Revelation says. Essentially, is the is the point of trying to claim that it's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature was something that was prevalent during this time, but it was always written by somebody who was claiming to be someone else. And these kinds of things, we've discussed this before. No, John is describing literal events that are literally going to take place on this earth. One day, sin is literally going to be judged when Christ comes again, and he's going to call the birds of the air to come and eat these people after they're dead. That's what's, <laughs> what is being described here. And there's a great contrast between this meal that the angel is summoning the birds to come to and the meal that we saw back in Revelation 19.7, two very different uh, uh Meals that are being described here, verse 9, actually of Revelation 19. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a great blessing to be invited, being to be a person who is being invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb, this feast that will take place in the future. That's representative of the kingdom period, if you'll remember. And uh, this Supper of God that's going to take place before the kingdom happens, and that is this uh, incredible destruction that is going to take place, so much so that every level of society is involved in this. If you'll notice the language there, Uh, In verse 18, we have kings, we have commanders, we have mighty men, the horses, even those who sit on the horses, uh, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Every single level of society is involved in this judgment that is going to come to the earth, and that is uh, simply because we all will give an account one day for how we have lived. Every single person will. Philippians 2.9, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, we as God's creatures will all have to confess him one way or the other. And the fact of the matter is, the fact from the scriptures are that we have this life in order to confess his name, in order to receive eternal life, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have to confess his name, recognizing it's not just a a rote, oh, if I just proclaim the name of Jesus, then I'll be saved. No, you have to understand who you are, who he is. You are a sinner. He is your savior. He's your creator. He died for you on the cross. You have to uh, turn from whatever you're trusting in now that he doesn't exist, that your sin isn't that big of a deal. Uh, You'll be able to... your good's going to be able to outweigh your bad when you come before him. You have to turn from all of that, repent of that, change your mind of that, and trust in Christ and his name. What's wrapped up in his name. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. All of these names that we see here in Revelation and trust in that person and what he did for you. And when he, you do that, you receive eternal life. Guess what? Those who don't do that in this life are going to do it at some point in the future, according to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. One way or the other, they're going to recognize that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is their sovereign. It behooves us to do that now while we have the opportunity to do it otherwise we could face this judgment at some point in the future this calling of the birds a literal event that John that we need to understand that that this isn't just some dream and vision that John is having in order to scare us or to uh, push forward his theological agenda no this is a literal event. That John is telling us about, that Jesus Christ himself will come again. He's going to literally strike these nations with the very word of his mouth, and the birds, literal birds in mid heaven, are going to be summoned to eat the dead bodies of the people. That is the plain sense, the plain understanding of what is taking place here. There are real consequences for sin. And two individuals in particular at this time are going to be cast into a literal lake of fire. This is another very nefarious teaching that is becoming more and more prominent within Christianity and even in evangelical circles. That ah, there really isn't any such place as hell. Yeah, you know, the uh, you don't you don't need to be worried about that. That's just a apocalyptic kind of language. That's just uh, poetic language, and it's not a real place, so uh, just don't even worry about that. After all, God is nice. He's a loving God, and He's full of grace, and so He certainly could never do this. That's a real problem, because the Scriptures spend an awful lot of time telling us about a literal place of hell where sin will be Punished and where it will be dealt with. Without hell, we don't get the benefits of life the way it is supposed to be. Sin must be dealt with for us to enjoy eternal life with God. And the fact of the matter is, is that we all have a choice about where we want to spend that time. Notice Revelation 19.19 19. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in the presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And that's what I just read to you. (laughs) The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. Who are these people? We've spent an awful lot of time studying them in our uh, book in our study of the book of Revelation, the beast, of course, that's mentioned here is the Antichrist. Uh, we read about him in Daniel 7 in our scripture reading. It says, uh, verse 24, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, he will wear down the saints of the highest one. Uh, Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. This kingdom of the Antichrist, it says in verse 25, will last for three and a half years, this time of intense persecution, and then his reign will be taken away. Verse 27, then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and his dominions uh, uh, and all the dominions will serve and obey him very clear timeline laid out tribulation period christ comes again then the kingdom comes to the earth. In the meantime, during this tribulation period, this beast, the Antichrist, is going to rule and reign. We learned about him in Revelation 13. Uh, the kings of the earth are described in Revelation 16, 14, and 16, that they're all going to be coming against Christ to uh, wage war against him notice that this beast and they're going to assemble themselves at Armageddon or Armageddon as we oftentimes call it in Revelation 16:14 is what's described there and this beast and the false prophet are seized false prophet we studied him in Revelation 13:11 through 17 this one who's going to deceive the world cause the world to worship the Antichrist require that the world receive this mark of the beast, or else they will die—a literal mark on people. It's going to be a time of incredible deception. Second Thessalonians two nine, uh, speaking of this time period, Paul says that is the one speaking of the Antichrist, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's deception in the wickedness. People are led astray, led uh, away from God through the temptation of sin. And there's incredible deception in that. Have you ever noticed that in people? That the further and further they get into sin, the more and more Uh, obvious distance there is between them and God the more that they are uh, clearly deceived. That's the deception of wickedness. Why are they like this? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There's going to be this incredible Uh, time of deception uh, that is going to be taking place during the tribulation period, but Christ is going to come again and then he is going to cast them alive into the lake of fire. It says in verse 20, that, this is where we get the idea of a conscious eternal punishment for sin. That is laid out in, in uh, Revelation uh, 14 as well. Revelation 14:11 speaking of people who uh, worshiped the beast, worshiped the Antichrist, It says that they they are going to receive punishment as well and the smoke of their torment, verse 11, goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Hell is a real place of conscious torment for people because sin has consequences and it must be finally and fully Dealt with, uh, and this this is a this is a literal truth that is described to us in a literal, plain sense, and it's the only conclusion that we can come to, as the words are written to us here, that this is uh, something that we must believe in if we are going to hold to uh, the teachings of Scripture, and there are a number. Of uh, examples of this, and that is that this uh, that this second coming, for example, is a literal event that will one day take place as it's described here. Uh, some of these things are are easily understood if we just use a plain understanding of the scriptures, kind of like salvation by Faith alone, in Christ alone, not in, our, not in our works, not faith plus works, faith plus anything. Faith alone, in Christ alone, that's, that's orthodoxy. That's what the Bible says. That's how we receive eternal life. Some other uh, orthodox beliefs. God created the world in six days. We can go to chapter and verse. It tells us that right in the very first paragraph of the Bible. How are we going to treat God's word from the beginning? Is it literal? Does it mean he created everything out of nothing in six days? Or does it mean, oh no, it wasn't really all that good and it took billions of years for it to happen and uh, it's up to us to make it better again? Or do we go with what the word says? The virgin birth. Uh, there's another one that was that was uh, that's old news that that was attacked back uh, quite a while ago in evangelicalism. Well, Orthodox Christianity is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I would put premillennialism in that same category. That the plain understanding of Scripture, Christ will come before the kingdom. That's Orthodox Bible chapter and verse we can go to and uh see these see these events being described for us hell a real literal place where sin will be dealt with not something that we should uh just cast aside this is an orthodox belief a literal place where god will deal with Sin And the first people who will be cast alive into it are the beast and the false prophet. But the fact of the matter is that every person who doesn't trust in Christ will one day face the same punishment that we see the beast and the false prophet, the antichrist and the false prophet facing here in Revelation 19. Sin has real consequences. The truth of Scripture is that Jesus Christ has dealt with those consequences for us in His death, burial and resurrection. And uh, all He asks us to do is to put our faith in what He has done for us and, uh, and then live according to His word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this book of revelation that reveals so much about not just the future, but the world that we are living in today and how you are uh, going to deal with our problems that we face. I pray that we would uh, trust in you that if there's anyone who uh, is listening to this in the future or now who hasn't trusted in you, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them and and drive them to you that they would see that you are the one who is lifted up for our sins and that through that one act of righteousness you're drawing all men to yourself that we would just simply trust in you because sin has consequences and you took those consequences upon yourself and now you just ask that we simply trust in what you've done for us i pray that you would help those who are unbelieving to trust in you to believe in you and submit to You and to Your Word. I pray that You would help us as believers, that we would understand the real consequences of sin, the damage that it does to those around us, and to those that we love. The fact that that we can generationally have negative impacts on our children and our children's children because, because of our sin. And I just pray that You would help us to turn from them. Help us to submit to you and to your word and to the convicting uh, role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I just pray that that you would impress that upon all of our minds, that the sin and judgment that you're bringing upon the world is because of our sin, not just the sin of these people who are rejecting you, but it has to be punished oh, because of our own sin. We thank you for taking that upon yourself at the cross. I just pray that we would live each moment of the day grateful for what you have done for us at the cross. Grateful for what you're doing for us now in heaven as our high priest and grateful uh, for you for what you will do for us in the future. And may we be found faithful in the meantime, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.